Okay, today we hear from Genesis, starting in Genesis 25. Here we go. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer and his wife, Rebecca, became pregnant. The babies jostled inside and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the elder will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And now from Genesis 37. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he'd been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and they couldn't speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said, listen to the dream I had. We were uh, binding sheaves of corn out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered round mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of the dream and for what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem, come. I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So 
Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him, and then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Oh, let's not take his life, he said. Don't, don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to their father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robes, robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. Then Judah said to his brothers, well, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether you think it's your son's. He recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been turned, torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Wow. Talk about family drama, right? If you've ever thought your family had drama, I bet you it has nothing on these Israel's patriarchs. They can give you a run for your money. Jeannie, we just heard uh, read from the excerpts of Genesis 25 and 37, where we hear about three generations of the families of Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Tremendous dysfunction. And in reading these two chapters, you realize that Joseph's problems weren't only his problems. He was part of a family system that wasn't exactly healthy. And the mess spilled over into other parts of the family as well. Yet God still worked through all of this to fulfill his promises and his goodness. Last week, we launched into this new series called Emotionally Healthy Living, where we're looking at how we can become the best version of ourselves by paying attention to our emotional and relational health. As people made in the image of God, we are not only spiritual beings, but physical beings who experience emotions and relationships. And as challenging as that might be, it's in these areas that we often experience, that we can experience the fullness of our humanity. And in our first message last week, we looked at the importance of emotional awareness, knowing how we are feeling and being able to name those things. And today, we're going to look at how our family systems and our family experience have a significant influence on how we name and express and deal with our emotions. So we're going to walk through this in three steps. One is the mess, the more mess, and mess no more. Mess, no more mess, and mess no more. Jacob is also known as Israel. He's the father of the nation of Israel, and it's his 12 sons that become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. So definitely, this is a foundational 
family in the history of Israel. Yet amidst this family of promise, we see an incredible mess. We see Jacob favored Joseph more. In fact, in verse, uh, chapter 37, verse 3, we're told that Jacob loved Joseph more. He loved Joseph more than any of the other siblings because he conceived Joseph at an old age. And he didn't seem to have that self-awareness that his favoritism was harmful to his other children and in their relationships. But Joseph's not exactly innocent of this matter either. He embraces this diva role in the family in full stride, flaunting his uh, robe before his brothers and telling them of the dreams he, was, he, was going to, he had, that he was going to rule over them and that they would be bowing down before him. Not only would his brothers be bowing down before him, but his dad and his mom as well. Joseph had some serious narcissistic tendencies. Probably wouldn't, we probably wouldn't be able to name it back then, but looking back, that's what we could see. Despite those dreams actually being true, those are the kinds of things that you keep on the down low, not telling your whole family before you. We're told Jacob loved Joseph, but the way Jacob loved Joseph caused turmoil amongst his family. We're told that his, of the, his brother's spite towards Joseph four times after he's given this robe and he tells the, stor- uh, the story of his dreams. In verse 4, we say, it, we're told that his brothers hated him. Verse 5, they hated him all the more. Verse 8, they hated him all the more. In verse 11, they were jealous of him. This is not a fun family to be part of. And it's only when Jacob's honor is threatened that he rebukes Joseph because he does nothing the whole time. Eventually, we find that the brothers hate him so much that they hatch up a plan to kill Joseph. And it's Judah, one of the older brothers, who is a true opportunist. He says, well, if we kill him, we don't get anything out of it. So let's sell him off to some slave traders so at least we get some money out of this. And we'll get, come back to him in just a moment. When the brothers report Jake, uh, Joseph's alleged death to Joseph, uh, no, to, sorry, Joseph, they report Joseph's alleged death to Jacob, they, all they do is bring this robe dipped in blood and present it before Joseph. They don't say a single word, if you notice that. It's kind of like the parent who arrives home to the broken window, and the kids are right beside them. It's like, well, how did this happen? It's like, I don't know, it just happened. They just leave Jacob to make the interpretation himself. We found this. Examine it to see if this is your son's robe. That's cool. and, and, and so Jacob sees it and jumps to the conclusion that Joseph is dead. And they remain silent. They're not going to give it away because they, their, their lives are on the line. But Joseph's relationship here isn't the only challenging one in the family. We find that just one chapter later, which we didn't hear, but I'll just paraphrase phrase very quickly. It's a story about Judah and how he deals with his sons and his daughter-in-law. And granted, if you've never read it before, it's incredibly graphic. There's rape and incest and uh, prostitution going on all within this family. But, and this is, this is a difficult chapter for a lot of people, but it's, it helps to understand this ancient custom called leveret marriage. It's what happens when, in ancient times, if the oldest child has Siri going on, you can listen. Okay. No, if the oldest child um, has, uh, is, is married and, and, and dies, 
it's the responsibility of the second brother to marry the wife and conceive a child on behalf of his older brother so that they could be cared for, uh, the widow could be cared for in her old age. And so, uh, otherwise she would have no ability to support herself. And in Judah's family, the oldest son dies and leaving Tamar, the daughter-in-law, childless. And then the second son dies because he refuses to step into the older brother's role in bearing this child for uh, his brother's wife. He's concerned that his sons uh, would lose favor compared to the oldest born, who is born in the name of the firstborn brother. So here we see insecurity and jealousy and pettiness run in Judah's family too. And eventually, in, later in the chapter, in verse 11, we find that Judah is fearful of losing his third son. He thinks, oh, there must be something wrong with this daughter-in-law. So I'm going to promise my third son to her, but I'm never going to let it happen. So he deceives her. Tamar is supposed to be provided for by the men in her life, but they're not holding up their end of the deal. And so she takes matter into her own hands. She tricks Judah by posing as a prostitute. And Judah, as the, as the patriarch, is driven by his appetites for personal gratification, not unlike his uncle, who sold his birthright for a bowl, a bowl of stew. And Tamar conceives a set of battling twins, again, not unlike uh, Judah's father and his uncle. If you think your family is a mess, consider what scripture has recorded for us about this family that God intended to shine his character through to the world. Not exactly a pinnacle example of how to do family, right? If you go back one more generation, as we heard in chapter 25, you realize that these kinds of problems weren't just Joseph and Judah's problems. In, verse, in chapter 25, Jacob is the second-born twin to Isaac and Rebekah. And we're told that there's a story of favorites. Isaac likes Esau more. Rebekah likes Jacob more. And one day, Esau is famished from a day of hunting and sells his birthright to Jacob for a pot of stew. And even though Esau is impetuous, it's actually Rebekah's, Rebekah, the mom, who coaches Jacob in the scheme. Later on, in uh, two chapters later, in verse, uh, chapter 27, we hear how Jacob steals Esau's birthright, and Esau walks away bitter. Rebekah meddles further, conspiring to send Jacob, her favorite, to family in Canaan, but masks it as a request to Isaac to not permit uh, Jacob from marrying a Canaanite woman. So Esau goes and marries a Canaanite woman to spite Jacob and Isaac. Now, we spent a lot of time walking through all these family relationships over three generations. So thanks for your patience in following along. But there's two reasons for doing so. Number one, so you can find comfort in your family not being as messy as them. You're not the worst. Secondly, and probably more importantly, though, the messes of our lives and our families often go back generations. And so it's helpful to recognize the themes. In Isaac and Jacob's families, we see some family themes arise. And here are a few highlights. They're not maybe all of them. Number one, there's favoritism going on by at least one parent. Isaac favored Esau. Rebekah favored Jacob. And Jacob favored Joseph. And later on, Benjamin over all the other brothers. And we find Judah favored his sons over his daughter-in-law. And protecting her. Favoritism. There's lying, deception. 
Isaac and Rebekah's marriage is characterized by lies. And Jacob, the father of the nation Israel, his name actually means deceiver. That's how he lives his life. That was his character. Ten of Jacob's children lied about Joseph's death, faking the funeral and keeping the family secret for more than ten years. Judah lies to his daughter-in-law Tamar about his intention, while Tamar, to survive, lies to Judah about her identity. We've got favoritism, lying in the family. There's estranged relationships. Jacob fled from Esau and was cut off for years. Esau has fled from the, from the family and married outside of the family, outside of what was expected of the family. And we have Joseph, who's cut off from his brothers for more than a decade. Problems, problems, problems. What kind of themes do you see in your family? I'll come back to this in a moment. Last week, we had a house guest visit from England, and she asked us about some of the biggest differences that we've noticed since moving to America from Canada. And the first thing that came to mind is online shopping with in-home delivery. The first thing I came to set up was that, after setting up internet in my house. You mean I get to choose almost anything online and it will arrive in my house, in my door, and I don't have to be home any time of the day? No wonder physical activity is a challenge in America. Which leads me to the second difference I've noticed in healthcare. Choosing a primary care doctor, choosing health insurance options, choosing a hospital to go to when you need it. And most of, all, most of us, not all of course, enjoy this nation of choice. And this choice is what spurs on America's innovation and entrepreneurial spirit. We are a nation of choice. But here's one thing that you will never get to choose in America. There's one choice that you have absolutely no control over. And you have no say in it at all. And some of you independent-minded individuals may be cringing at about what I'm about to say. But don't worry. It's not unique to you as Americans. And that's making some of you cringe too. Because you're thinking, what? You mean I'm not exceptional? Here's what you never get to choose. None of us ever gets to choose our families. You never get it. You have no say in it at all. God chooses to introduce you to this world through a particular family, at a particular place, and at a particular point in history. No one else has your story. Whether it's the family you're born into, or whether it's a family you're adopted into. We are given specific opportunities and gifts, but we are also given specific baggage that we have to deal with. And it's baggage that we often think is normal because it's the only thing we've known. And yes, some of us have to deal with more baggage than others. But this gift of life with God is that while we can't choose what family experience we have, we can choose how to respond differently so that we might live the best version of ourselves. We can choose to live in this new family, God's family, as we put our trust in Christ. We don't have to live under the brokenness of our past, but this takes incredible courage and honesty. This takes naming things for what they are, and many times this can be incredibly vulnerable for us because our home and family lives have been traumatic. Last week, we learned about the importance of naming our feelings. And this week, I hope we can begin to see the importance of naming our unhealthy themes in the families of our origin. 
and how they affect our emotions and our relationships. So we need to go back to go forward. Pete Cesaro, who, who, we, uh, who we're relying on in this series, uh, identifies two areas for us to address with our families. Number one is to identify the blessings, but also the sins of our families, or if you prefer my family's strengths, but also my family's hang-ups. And don't just go at your, your immediate family. Go back two or three generations. You might recognize and begin to see patterns and how they have impacted you and your values today. That's the first thing. The second thing you can do is following Christ to become the best version of ourselves requires us to put off some of those sinful patterns in our families of origin and relearn how to do life differently in, as part of God's family in this world. If we aren't honest with seeing those patterns of abuse, of addiction, of broken relationships, of unfaithfulness, maybe there's patterns of mental health or physical health, mistrust of authority, these are things that can handicap our relationships with other people, and especially our loved ones. A family history lives in every single one of us, but it lives unhealthily in those of us who particularly attempt to bury it or run from it. Our messes become more messes if we don't bear, deal with them honestly and name them for what they are. Over the years, Julie and I have had the privilege of journeying with many couples in premarital mentoring. As we meet with them over several sessions, one of the first things we do with them is to do a genogram. A genogram, if you're not familiar with it, is kind of like doing a family tree that goes back two or three generations, where you not only map out your uh, the names and relationships of your family, but you also begin to make observations about themes in your family. You, go, uh, you, you look at the kinds of relationships. Are, are certain relationships more enmeshed than, than they should be? Are certain relationships more in more conflict than the others? This is just a generic one. This is not my particular one. But this is a basic one. And in this case, they're saying, okay, grandpa had heart disease, which is true for me. And my dad has heart disease as well. So that's something to be aware of. But you also begin to look at patterns of uh, abuse or patterns of unhealthiness. And you begin to see, oh, there's things that I can take note of here. And you can also note strengths and gifts of values. Uh, you can go to wcfchurch.org slash genogram and you can see some resources to, do, to look at that further and uh, to find out more how to do one for yourself. You don't have to be getting married to do one of these. This is a healthy exercise, actually, to just identify things going on in your family. And I'm happy to chat with you about that if you want to take a look at that. With the couples, as we're meeting with them, we talk through their observations of their family of origin and begin to identify patterns. Couples begin seeing that their families can be quite different from one another and begin envisioning a different future together as they begin taking steps towards that. And it's an exercise to go back in order to go forward. In our sessions, we want couples to begin talking about everything almost. Money, sex, family background, family planning, conflict, how you deal with change, what is your relational history, what are your expectations and roles in marriage, what are your definitions of success, and what are your goals as individuals and it's as, as a family unit. We'll ask them questions like, in your family, which areas are non-negotiable? What did you see your parents do? 
What was ignored in your family? What was brushed over and shoved under the carpet? What were unspoken rules in your family? And here's an interesting one that always gets conversation going. What would it look like for your dad to be married to her mom? Or what would it look like for your, her, mom, her dad to be married to your mom? Yeah, it'd be pretty funny. Or scary in some cases. As couples begin to talk about their family relationships, this begins to open up a window into the side of the partner that they may not have seen yet in dating. And the goal of mentoring and, and talking through all these relationships, uh, it, areas of relationships, is to see uh, what it looks like to walk into a lifelong commitment to one another with your eyes wide open. Rather than sliding into a relationship and discovering chasms in values when couples are, are too committed to change course without significant compromise. By looking back into themes on our families, we're able to name the messes and begin to move forward. But it takes incredible courage for us to name those broken parts of our family that lead to broken parts of our lives. The philosopher George Santayana says this. He's a Spanish philosopher from the 19th century. Those who cannot learn from the past are doomed to repeat it. Those who cannot learn from the past are doomed to repeat it. Or if you like Murphy, he says, if you do try and do the same thing and expect a different result, that's foolishness, right? It's true of politics, it's true of history, and it's certainly true of our families. So that's why we look back to go forward. We look back, but we don't have to keep looking back. The genogram may be a helpful tool, but it offers no true power for us to get us out of our messes. Where do we get the courage to face our hang-ups that may have been inherited from our families? Where do we deal with those anxieties that have been passed on, those insecurities? Maybe we place those insecurities in material wealth or place our insecurities in uh, physical security of our home. The Christian faith has never been about picking up your bootstraps and getting stuff fixed. And we certainly have responsibility for, for doing things that are within our control. But the good news of Jesus begins with acknowledging that we cannot fix everything by ourselves in our own strength, and we invite him to take the lead in our lives. The beauty and hope of Jesus that, is that our earthly families, healthy or unhealthy, present or not, don't define us ultimately. It's the family that we have been adopted into through Jesus Christ that makes the biggest difference. Through God's infinite wisdom, he makes a way for us to join the family of God. In the letter to the Ephesians, Paul writes, Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes, to become beautiful, to become flourishing, to become full. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure. This is the New Living Translation version. In God's loving care, and gracious welcome into the family of God, we are made new in Christ. Our mess-ups and hang-ups can be made whole. Our past doesn't have to define our future. Last week, I shared with you my own journey towards emotional awareness. And part of that journey was realizing the influence of my family. Let me share with you a few observations that are a summary of my genogram as I've been reflecting on it. 
You see, my dad is the youngest of four siblings born in Hong Kong. My, my father's parents were simple villagers who loved Jesus. But his dad, my grandfather, died at a young age because despite his incredible love for Jesus, it was unmatched in his love for barbecue pork. He died of heart disease at the young age of 40. So my father essentially grew up without a dad. And not only that, but my dad was born during Japan's invasion of China. And he was only a toddler at the time, three years old. And times are different when you're poor and you're trying to survive a war. So as a toddler, the family wanted to leave him be, uh, behind at the side of the road, but it was only because his big sister piggybacked him from Hong Kong into Shenzhen, uh, China, to survive. And because his mom couldn't go back with him into Hong Kong, and he was sent back as a 10-year-old to, to learn, go to school with his two brothers. He had to figure out life on his own without parents to model what family looked like. And by God's grace and the generous support of his big sister, who helped him survive, and his big brother, who supported him financially to come to America. And he came to Missouri, where he trained to become a pastor. And it's also the place where he met my mom, married, and had me. My mom was an only child who was raised by her mom, my grandma. And she was raised through the patronage of family friends, because her father also died at a young age. My great-grandfather died because, when he was 35 years old, not of heart disease this time, but because of a stray bullet, because he was fighting in the Revolutionary Army against the Imperial Guard in China. Even though he was an intellectual, he, write, he wrote lots of uh, articles and journals and books, he cared about his nation and wanted to make a difference. But he lost his life. And so my mom was raised by essentially a single mom, who was fostered by friends of Sun Yat-sen, the leader of the revolutionary movement in China. And because of that, my mom was mo moved 10 times in 15 years and had to go to school and learn three different languages because of those moves. Yet she and her cousins are incredibly educated. Growing up, I thought it was just normal that Chinese grandmas would read Jane Austen novels for leisure. But until I got married, I married Julia, she's like, you know, most Chinese grandmas don't even know English. <laughs> your, your grandma's pretty special. As I look back to my parents and their families, I began to understand how their family and upbringing affected me and affected their, uh, their family setting. For both of them, my, parent, my sister and I are the product of their first experience with a truly nuclear family where both parents have been around. Stability, healthy modeling of conflict resolution, naming your emotions, forget about it. They were just trying to figure out things on the fly, and my sister and I were guinea pigs for them that they really only had one shot with. And I really never understood this until I thought about it in preparation for this message this week. So who you have standing before you is really a product of their love, but ultimately of God's uh, the miracle of God's grace at work and his uh, calling of them into his family. In God's wise plan, my parents came to know God's family through Jesus. And they were able to change the course of each of their respective families. And I continue to do that uh, in my family by God's grace. 
and you can too. The gospel gives us immense hope. In Christ, we are brought into a family where God the Father embraces us no matter what our mess-ups are, no matter what our family's mess-ups are. And we have this big brother named Jesus who always goes to bat for us even when we turn our back on him. He takes our pain, he takes our brokenness, and he offers us a pathway to true identity and belonging. And in the Spirit of God, we have this person who knows the deepest crevices and deepest pains of our hearts. And yet he invites us and comes to heal us, to transform us, and give us power to move forward in life. As you look back to your family, there may be pain. And it may take incredible courage and honesty to name things for what they are. But we don't have to look back and get stuck there. We have a choice. We have a choice to respond to God's invitation into his family and find a path forward as we experience healing, forgiveness, and the power of Jesus. We can become the best version of ourselves as we entrust ourselves to Jesus and follow his example and allow him to lead us in the way.